Romans chapter 8, verse 13 is a sobering verse. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, to help illuminate what this verse is saying, I want you to use your minds and, and imagine with me a little bit. A man who believes in Jesus Christ, he's trying to please the Lord, he, he's at work one day, and he is tempted to tell a lie. And we're just viewing him, okay, we're flying the wall, we're, we're viewing this Christian man sitting at work, tempted to tell a lie. And we're actually able to get down into his mind and see him wrestling back and forth. I really want to tell this lie. No one would ever find out. I, I, would, I would have everything to gain by telling this lie, but I shouldn't. But, but I want to, but I shouldn't. He goes back and forth, and finally he decides, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Christ. I don't want to sin. I want to be holy. You get that with me, this picture of a, of a believing man who's wrestled with his temptation and decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pursue holiness. I'm going to flee sin. I'm going to fight sin, pursue holiness. Now, Okay, freeze that frame, flip to an interview with him. So now we have him in, sitting in a chair, and we get to ask him questions about what happened. All right, sir, you just resisted temptation. What question do we want to ask him? Here, here's what I want to ask him. Was it really necessary for you to fight that temptation? Was it really necessary for you to say, no, no, I don't want to sin, I want to pursue holiness? What would he say? He's a believer... He's a Christian man. He knows his Bible. Would he say, yes, it was really necessary to do the right thing there? If this man knows his Bible, he's a believer, he's going to say, yes. He knows Scripture passages like this, be holy for I am holy. We read that in 1 Peter. He knows Scripture passage like it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so in response to the question, did you really have to? Yes. Yes, I did. Now let's ask him another question. Well, we've got him in the interview chair, right? We don't want to let this guy go. We want to ask him this question. But don't you believe that your relationship with God is secure? I mean, don't you believe that there's no chance that you'll get unsaved isn't your relationship with God never going to change? How is he going to answer that question? Well, yes. I mean, he knows passages like John chapter 10, in which Jesus says that no one can pluck him out of his hand. Like, he is secure. Absolutely. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So he replies, I am sure, I am secure. Let's back up from this scenario and think about what we just saw. Here is a Christian man who knows he must live a holy life, and so he pursues holiness by resisting sin and doing the right thing. And at the same time, he also knows that his salvation is secure. You see what's going on? He knows he must pursue holiness. At the same time, he knows that he's saved, and that's not going to change. And with this scenario, I think it helps us see a paradox of the Christian life that we must understand as we go into this verse, Romans 8, 13. 
And here it is. The paradox of Christian living is that the people who are guaranteed eternal life apart from their own righteousness, we don't earn it, we don't work to get it, we're guaranteed eternal life apart from our own righteousness, are also passionate about living righteously. Therein is a paradox of the Christian life that although we have been given salvation as a free gift, we are nevertheless motivated to good works and to a pursuit of a holy life. And it goes contrary to the way we would expect. I want to just show you why this is paradoxical, because on the one hand, we would expect that if someone is trying to live a really holy life, they're trying to do the right thing, and they're they're trying to please God, we would expect that the person is doing that because he hopes to earn something. We, we think that someone who's working really hard and trying to live a holy life is doing it because they hope that they are going to get something out of it. But that's not what a Christian believes. God has given them righteousness as a free gift. So a believer is not working to get anything, nor to keep from losing something he's been given, because it's guaranteed as a gift. And on the other hand, we might expect that people who have been given righteousness, guaranteed, not going to change We'll say, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. You see how it goes contrary to the way we would expect? We would expect if someone has been given a free gift, they would be like lazy. Okay, well, then I could live like I please. But that is not the way Christians live. The paradox of Christian living is that the people who have been given righteousness as a free gift are those who pursue righteousness, not to earn it because they've been given it, not to keep from losing it because it'll never go away. And yet that assurance does not unhinge them from motivation. We see this throughout Scripture. I'll take you just to a couple passages to show this. You don't need to turn there, but just, just listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, think about the paradox of the Christian living is that the people who have been given righteousness as a guaranteed gift are also the ones who pursue righteousness. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God... Remember what the grace of God is, a gift of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. What was Paul saying? I've been given a gift. I'm not trying to earn anything, but the effect of the gift in my life is not to make me lazy, but to work harder, and yet I can't even claim any credit for the work I do because it says, it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. I mean, isn't that paradoxical that Paul is saying, I've been given grace, but the grace is not in vain because it makes me work harder, and yet even in working harder, I don't take any credit for that work. Or Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul is saying this to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation, because salvation is a gift. We don't work for it, we work from it. He's saying, so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because actually, it's God who's doing the work anyway. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What's going on? They're supposed to work out, not for their salvation. They do this not to gain salvation, but because they have salvation, and they do this not to take credit for it, but to give the glory to God. I'll give you one more example. It's one that we've seen before recently in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this in verse 12, I press on to make it my own 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What's going on here? Paul is saying, Jesus has made me his own. It's not going to change. I'm secure in my relationship with him. And yet, Paul is saying, that doesn't make me lazy. Yet, I, I reach forward to, to press on to make it my own. Is Paul trying to earn his salvation? Not at all. What he's doing, he's working from his salvation. Is he doing anything that he gets glory for? Not at all, because it's Jesus who already made him his own. This is the central paradox of the Christian life, that the people who have been given righteousness as a free gift are the ones who pursue righteousness, not because they're trying to gain anything, but because they've been given something. Not because they're trying to keep from losing something, because what they have is guaranteed. Let's go back to our working man who's a Christian sitting in the interview chair. He's still there, okay? He's been waiting this entire time. While we have him, let's ask him another question, because I've already asked him, did you really have to do that? Did you really have to do the right thing? And what did he say? Yes. And then I asked him, but don't you know, you're not going to lose your salvation. And he said, yeah, I know that. So what do you want to ask him? What's the natural question that would flow from that? Then why? Why pursue holiness like that? Why resist temptation? And if this believer knows his Bible, which we're going to assume he does, then he is not going to answer in terms of something he is trying to earn, for he knows salvation cannot be earned. And he's not going to give an answer in terms of something he fears to lose, for that salvation once received can never be lost. If he knows his Bible, the only answer that he can give is in terms of a new life that he's been given. The only answer in the, to the question, why, what motivates you, is going to be something incredibly new, something he has been given, and what we see that he has been given in Romans chapter 8 is the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I am in Christ. I am a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. What is the answer to the question, why are you motivated to pursue holiness? Not because I'm trying to gain something, not because I'm afraid of losing something, but because I have new life, new life by the Spirit. The Spirit of life, Romans 8, 2, has set me free from the law of sin and death. And in this we see the beauty and the power of the gospel, that the people who are guaranteed eternal life apart from their own righteousness are passionate about living righteously so that we can just stand back and say, this is all of God. This is all of God. And we must answer the question, why, in terms of the Holy Spirit? And that takes us to our text, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And in this text, we see very simply just two things. We see a warning and a duty. I want to just help you listen as I, as I go through this message, because if you tune out especially near the end, you may misunderstand some things I'm going to say. So you've got to hang with me the whole time, because this is a difficult warning here. It catches us off guard a bit. 
if you live according to the flesh, you will die. First of all, let's look at what's not surprising about this warning. It should not surprise us at all that Paul warns us that if you live according to the flesh, you will die, because we've already learned that the flesh is that part of life that wants to live in rebellion against God, life lived independently of God. Think of it this way. The flesh, in a moral respect, is really the attitude that says to God, not your way, but mine be done. And in the end, the flesh is going to get its own way, eternally separated from God. Because by death, by die, Paul means more than just physical death. He has to mean more than physical death, because unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. Our physical bodies will die. For those of us who are believers, that will not be the final end, because we will be raised because of the Spirit who indwells us. What Paul is talking about here is, is eternal death, separation from the presence of God, infinitely severed from the fountain of joy and life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But that's not surprising to us because we already know that. The wages of sin is what? It's death. We've been learning that all throughout the book of Romans. Yes, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Those that sin will die. That is the whole black backdrop to the gospel. But what is surprising, I think, is that Paul says, if you live according to the flesh. I think that's what catches us off, off guard. I thought he was speaking to believers, and then he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Here's what is going on here. Paul is stating a fact about anyone who lives according to the flesh, including anyone who could be reading his letter. And see how it fits into the context where he says in verse 12, you don't owe the flesh anything. We're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is simply a fact that sin results in death. But why give this warning in the way he does? And here it is. Never in Scripture is a person encouraged to feel assurance in a sinful lifestyle. Never in Scripture is a person encouraged to feel assurance in sinful living. Yes, God wants His children to enjoy the blessing of assurance, and we are going to see that as we look at the next few verses, because in verse 14 it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, and Paul begins to assure those who have the Spirit, it's, you're never going to die. You have God's Spirit within you. In fact, you can know this. It's not as if you need to live your life wondering, am I or am I not? Because as a believer, you will have the Spirit of God within you, and He's going to be testifying with your spirit that you are a child of God, and He Spirit within you that cries to the Father, Abba, Father. It's the, the cry of a heart who knows who His heavenly Father is. As you're a true believer in Jesus, God wants you to have the assurance, but assurance is never granted to people who live a life of sin. In their sin, you will never gain assurance. That is why He gives this warning. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. People who live according to the flesh should know that that lifestyle is what leads to death. Now, here is a, a problem that we must confront in our own thinking. It lurks in our hearts and it runs rampant in our culture. Some people have wrongly taught that we must do good works to earn and maintain our relationship with God. Isn't that right? People have wrongly taught that. But if people have wrongly taught that we must do good things to earn and maintain our relationship with God, 
others have just as wrongly taught that now that we have a relationship with God or think we have a relationship with God, it doesn't matter what we do. Picture it like this. When we walk along the narrow road of the gospel, legalism and lawlessness are always trying to push us into either ditch. Legalism tries to shove us into the ditch of guilt-motivated, pride-producing living disguised as holiness. That's what legalism does. It comes in the disguise of holy living when, in fact, it is guilt-motivated and pride-producing. It tries to shove us into that ditch of legalism. On the other hand, lawlessness, saying, okay, once saved, doesn't matter what you do, it's unhitching good works from salvation, is trying to shove us into the ditch of a sin-excusing approach to life, and that is disguised as grace. The gospel alone teaches us to enjoy God's grace with holiness and to pursue holiness with grace. I'll say that again. The gospel alone allows us to enjoy grace with holiness and to pursue holiness with grace so that our pursuit of holiness does not produce pride but humility. So that a pursuit of righteousness does not produce a sense of achievement, but of giving glory to God. And so our embrace and enjoyment of grace doesn't produce laziness, but produces a motivation to live a godly life. You see how you have to get the gospel straight, and if you stray either way, you're off on one side or the other. And if you look for it in our culture... You can find plenty of assurances out there of people who claim that holiness is optional to the Christian life. But if someone thinks that holiness is optional, that person does not understand the gospel because the gospel says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die because the gospel says that people who have been given righteousness are the ones who pursue righteousness. The gospel says, by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. But why? You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Not because of your good works, but for good works. And so we cannot unhinge a holy lifestyle, the pursuit of holiness. We cannot unhinge that from the grace of God from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Righteous living is the very reason for which God saved us. You're in chapter 8. Look at chapter 2 and chapter 6 and verses 22 and 23. Paul writes this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, what does it mean to be free from sin? It means the fruit you get leads to sanctification. The outcome of being freed from sin is a life of holiness, not perfect holiness. I'm saying the pursuit of holiness. I'm not saying Christians never sin. We established that so uh, carefully last time that life is a struggle, but the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we look at the verse, you can go back to chapter 8 and verse 13, this warning is something for us to seriously consider. 
My job as a preacher is not to try to make anybody feel good, but it is to faithfully tell you what God has said, to make the Word of God as clear as I can. I am not allowed to blunt a sharp warning. The, the Holy Spirit can use His Word to give your heart assurance, and He will. And the Holy Spirit can also convict you of sin, and He will. I'm here to tell you what God says. When I struggled as a young man, as a teenager, wondering, am I really saved? From time to time, our sins seem to just cloud over our heads, making us wonder if the light of God's favor is still upon us. Where I found my assurance was in the book of John, the first chapter in the twelfth verse, where John assures us that, that those who are believing in in Jesus, the Son of God, have been given the authority to be called sons of God. And so I asked myself, am I believing in Jesus? And the Word of God stirred in my heart assurance. And it is true that faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the Word of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you will find assurance from the Word of God. But you also find a warning, and that is a warning we need to seriously consider. Paul exhorted the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So we have a warning, but we also have a duty, and that is, in the latter, latter half of verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, here it is, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The assurance of our salvation that God wants us to enjoy the voice of the Spirit in our hearts saying, you are a child of God. The Word of God that's testifying to us that those who are in Christ are held in His hand and they will never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out. That assurance does not produce laziness. That assurance does not produce doing nothing. It stirs us up. And there is this duty presented here, and the duty is to kill sin. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To kill sin by the Spirit power of the Spirit. Now, you may say, Pastor Jonathan, can't you use a little calmer, nicer terminology? Can't you lose, use something that sounds a little less violent? I'm sorry I can't, because that's the words that the Bible uses. We find a similar word in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, where Paul says to mortify, put to death the deeds of sin. These are strong words. This is decisive. This is active. So, what I want to do is ask four questions about this latter half of the verse to make sure we all understand what is being said. The first question is, what is not being said? We need to make sure we know that Paul is not saying that a person can earn his salvation. How do I know this? It should be incredibly obvious by this point in the book of Romans, because Paul's whole point is, it is not a result of your own works. But there's another reason right within this verse why we know unmistakably that Paul's not saying that you could earn your own salvation or gain eternal life by putting to death the deeds of the body. There is something incredibly obvious right here in the, in the text. Do you see it? Look at verse 13. What should tell us, very obviously, without a question, that Paul is not saying that you could earn your salvation? Do you see it? It is these words, by the Spirit. 
Because you and I know that we cannot have the Spirit of God unless we're trusting in Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking to those who have the Holy Spirit. He's not speaking, he's not saying, if you are aggressive enough in killing sin, then you can do it and gain eternal life. No, 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 no. You already have eternal life. You already have the gift of the Holy Spirit because that's the only way in which you can put sin to death. It's a very important distinction to be made, but it's right here in the verse. Paul's not saying that a person can earn his salvation. This is similar to what Jesus is saying in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can bear a little bit of fruit. Absolutely not. For apart from me, you could give some evidence of salvation. No, apart from me, you could do what? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't do a single thing. So Paul is speaking to believers. He is speaking to people who have been already guaranteed eternal life. Paul is not saying that a person can earn his salvation. He's already said this all throughout the book of Romans, that people have been set free by the Spirit, not themselves, from the law of sin and death, and that salvation is the free gift of God. So what then is this duty that Paul is telling us we must be engaged in? Second, This assumes that although the power of sin has been broken, it will try to harass us as long as we live. Although the power of sin has been broken, it will try to harass us as long as we live. Turn back to Romans chapter 6 and look at verses 11 and 12. Paul is telling his readers that they must consider themselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why must they consider themselves that? Because they are dead to sin. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 6. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is speaking to those who have died to sin. So because you've died to sin, just consider that to be true about yourself. However, he goes on in verse 12, So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It's like sin is locked up behind the bars it's given its, sentence, its death sentence, and yet it still is somehow trying to taunt you and to get you under its power. That's why Paul has to say, don't let it do that. It doesn't have to. You've been broken free from the power of sin. Don't let it have a dominion over you, but all your life it is going to harass you. This has been called indwelling sin. There's a very helpful book by a man named Chris Lungard. It's called The Enemy Within. I think it's a very good way to describe what we call the flesh or indwelling sin in our lives. Although the power of sin has been broken, it will continue to try to harass us as long as we live. It is that unredeemed and unredeemable part of our nature that will always stalk us, always harass us, try to pull us down. By referring to this as the deeds of the body, Paul is merely drawing attention to the fact that the means by which we sin tends to be our physical existence, our head, eyes, hands, feet. These are the things that put sin into action. We find this also in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. We see this also in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And this means, as a believer, the Christian life is never going to be easy. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, I wish I didn't have to tell you that. I wish I could tell you it's going to be smooth sailing. Just pull the oars out of the water, put them in the boat, relax, and go with the flow. That would be so much easier if I could just say that, but the Bible does not present the Christian life 
as a dreamy floating down the river. What kind of words does the Bible use to describe the Christian life? It talks about warfare. It talks about battle. This is not a battle to gain spiritual life. It's a battle because spiritual life has been gained for us, and yet while we live on this earth, we have an enemy within. Just to be clear, this battle for believers is guaranteed victory. It's guaranteed victory. Death has been crushed to death by Jesus Christ. Sin will be ultimately conquered, but it is because of our assurance of the victory that we can fight the battle, and we must fight the battle. It's not that we're hoping to win the battle by our effort. It's because God has guaranteed that it will be won. That's why we could fight the battle. And yet it is a battle. And the minute we relax a little bit, the minute we think, oh, I think I'm okay, we should remember the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where Paul writes, let him who thinks he stands take heed, what? Lest he fall. Hebrews 12, 1 exhorts us to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us or which clings so closely. So what does this mean then? This means that we must not let sin exist in our lives. That's what, that's what this verse means. Put to death the deeds of the body. We must understand something about sin. Sin is like a baby anaconda. You can manage it while it's a baby, but a baby anaconda grows up to be an adult anaconda, to be feet after feet after feet of writhing muscle that can squeeze the life out of you. And just in the same way, baby sins want to become grown-up sins. Here's what I mean by that. Lust wants to grow up to be adultery. A bitter thought wants to grow up to be abuse or abandonment. Doubt wants to grow up to be atheism. Sin wants to be always the fullest version of its own self. And when sin knocks at your door, it never knocks as a monster. Boo! Scared you. It's not what sin does. Sin appears as something reasonable, manageable, inviting, sophisticated, pleasant, fun. It convinces you when sin knocks on your door, it convinces you it's going to be okay. I'm only going to come into the front part of your house and no further. It's gonna, you can manage me. If things get out of control, I'll leave right away. Don't worry about it. Just, just let, me, let me in. It never tells you what it seeks to become. And it never tells you what it really is. It always disguises itself or at least tricks you into thinking or you trick yourself into thinking that it's something else. It calls itself curiosity when it's really lust. It calls itself teaching him a lesson when it's really revenge. It calls itself needing some me time when it's really selfishness. And it urges you to compare what is with what could be. Well, sure, it's overeating, but at least it's not something else. Well, sure, it's pornography, but at least it's not adultery. And with those excuses, sin has taken a flying leap right inside. It will show you the thrill. It will never show you the disaster that could follow. And so what, in light of the danger of sin, which we all feel, what must we do? What must we do? Look at the verse. Let your eyes gaze on that. What must we do? We must put it to death. I wonder sometimes if we are so afraid of becoming legalistic that our efforts against sin are miserable and puny and half-hearted and pitiful. But getting rid of sin in your life is not legalism, just like undergoing cancer surgery is not just self-mutilation. 
The words of the Bible here, they're not half-hearted. We're not commanded to tranquilize, sedate, manage, or control sin. Nothing less than fatal blows will do. And again, if that sounds extreme, I'm not using words any stronger than words the Bible uses. If you had a garden you like and you notice a weed growing in it, would you be content to, to rip it off right at the surface of the soil? Or would you push your fingernails right below the, per, the, the surface and, and pull it up by the roots? If we do that with our gardens, should we not do that with our hearts? Why do we deal with our sins so tenderly, so generously, so kindly, giving it chance after chance after chance? The duty is clear. Put sin to death. What, by what means must sin be put to death? And unless you get this, this sermon will do you no good. Unless you get this next point, nothing, nothing will do you any good. And here it is. This is possible only in the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this on your own, and you shouldn't try. Because if you do, it will turn you into a legalistic, proud person who does not appreciate and stand in awe of the grace of God. It will shrivel your soul if you try to kill sin apart from the power of the Holy Spirit because there is no point in trying, there is no point in doing that unless you have new life, unless you have been set free from the law of sin and death, which if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been. And you have the power within you. It is not a power of your own so that when you, you can, like Paul say, the grace of God was not in vain toward me and I worked hard, but it wasn't even me that was working. It was the grace of God in me. You could say like Paul did in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so that all our pursuits of holiness, all our efforts to subdue sin are not even our own efforts. They're all the work of God. For, as Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's none of our own. We have no room for boasting. We work from our salvation. It's motivated by gratitude. It produces humility. It's holiness with grace, and it's enjoying grace with holiness. That is what the gospel teaches us to do. And we can have assurance that doesn't lead to laziness, and we can have hard work that doesn't lead to pride. Only by the gospel, only because the Holy Spirit indwells us. Without the Spirit, no amount of self-discipline no high standards, no internet filter, no diet, no church attendance, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of prayer can allow you to kill the tiniest sin in your life. It'll all be completely ineffective without the Holy Spirit. Just like pulling weeds is a necessary part of gardening, but you don't pull weeds unless you have a garden. You don't yank up weeds where there's nothing growing there. It's pointless. It's ineffective. There's no point in trying to kill sins unless there's a life of God within you. Why is it? Let's probe a step deeper. Why is it that we can kill sin only in the power of the Holy Spirit? And it goes back to something that the Holy Spirit was sent to do for us. In John chapter 16 and verse 14, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And what His job is, is to glorify me, Jesus says. The role of the Spirit is to magnify the work of Christ in your life. 
The role of the Spirit is to rivet your attention to the cross of Christ and His resurrection, His love for you, His atoning death for you, so that you will begin to see sin for what it really is. And you'll begin to see Christ for what He truly is, so that you will exalt and adore Him and find in Him delight that you could never find in your sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. And killing sin is just one side of the coin of sanctification. It's the negative side. It's the, it's the side that has to do with the pulling of weeds. But the positive side is the side of the Holy Spirit. You can never rip something out and expect to grow unless you replace it with your delight in Jesus Christ. And it is only as you begin to grow in your delight in Christ that you will be able to have the power to mortify sin in your life. Only by the Holy Spirit. He reminds you what Jesus did on the cross for you. He helps you see your sin in the light of His sacrifice. And without the Spirit, any spiritual discipline will become like a pile of cold wood with no heat to set it ablaze. But with the heat of the Holy Spirit, your spiritual disciplines become fuel for the fire, making it hotter and brighter. This is the duty that we're commanded. This is simply us saying yes to what God has done in our lives. Yes, He will hold me fast, and that's why I hold fast to Him. That's the beauty of the gospel. And if this leaves you wondering, hey, that goes against normal human motivation. Normally, people work to get something they don't have or to keep something they don't want to lose. These people work because they have something they were given for free and can never lose. But this is the only way that believers do all the good they can out of gratitude and not guilt, with humility and grace. And if you're thinking this morning, I've never experienced this before. I've never gotten this right before. I've never understood and accepted the gospel. Have you considered whether God is inviting you to believe? And I can tell you that He is. And that's an invitation you must not decline, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live.